This shepherd's hook can be found everywhere during the holiday season. In fact, according to the National Confectioners Association, they are the number one selling non-chocolate candy during the month of December, with 90% of the red and white striped treats sold between Thanksgiving and Christmas. But during the second week of December is when the sales hit their peak, likely because most people decorate their Christmas trees that week. But just when and how these sweet treats got their start is a bit more uncertain than their popularity. It's a story of rowdy children, enduring myths, and some interesting science. We're exploring the history and origins of candy canes. Welcome to another serving of Seasons Eatings, the podcast which explores the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. Seasons Eatings can be found wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Seasons Eatings is also found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you love the show, then I humbly ask you to share this podcast with someone you think would love to hear more about the history of Christmas and the foods which shape the holiday we love so much. I want to thank Lenora Gilbert for suggesting this month's episode. It's great to hear from listeners of the podcast. And if you want to give me suggestions for future episodes, just email me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. All the links can be found in the show notes at seasonseatingspodcast.com. Church history records that in 1670, the choir master at Germany's Cologne Cathedral was faced with a problem that still challenges parents, teachers, and choir directors today. In ancient Cologne, as well as in thousands of churches today, the children in the choir often grew restless and noisy during the long services. The choir director sought out a local candy maker, and after looking over the treats in his shop, The music leader paused in front of some white, sweet sticks. Yet, the choir master wondered if the priests and parents would allow him to give the children in his choir candy to eat during a church service. The choir master asked the candy maker if she could bend the sticks and make a crook at the top of each one. The candy would not be just a treat, it would be a teaching tool. The choir master decided that the candy's pure white color would represent the purity of Christ. The crook would serve as a way for the children to remember the story of the shepherds who came to visit the baby Jesus. The shepherds carried staffs or canes, and with the hook at the top of the stick, the candy now looked like a cane. It's a great story, but probably not that accurate, says Susan Benjamin, founder of True Treats, historic candy, an author of Sweet as Sin, the unwrapped story of how candy became America's pleasure, agrees the candy cane most likely took shape in the 17th century Europe when pulled sugars, the parent to today's sugar sticks, were all the rage. It was at the time somewhere in Germany that a hook was added to the stick, she says. Benjamin also cites the theory that a German choir master gave candy sticks to still his fidgety choir boys during service. It was a gentler form of enticement than whacking them with a switch, she says. She says, the story has some credibility, but it's just as likely Germans adding 
the hook to hang them from trees alongside cookies and fruits and other treats. Most, however, agree the white candy cane made its U.S. debut in 1847 in Worcester, Ohio, when August Imgard, a German-Swedish immigrant, decorated a small blue spruce with paper ornaments and candy canes. Augustus or August Imgard was a German immigrant who had been recognized as an early proponent in popularizing the Christmas tree in the United States. He had also been credited with being the first to decorate it with candy canes. August emigrated from the Bavarian mountains of Germany to Worcester, Ohio before he was 20 years old and started his tailoring business. In 1847, Imgard cut a blue spruce tree from the woods outside town, had the village tinsmith construct a star, and placed the tree in his house, decorating it with paper ornaments, gilded nuts, and kuchen. It stood on a slowly revolving platform while a music box played and people came from miles around to view it. Imgard died in 1904 and is buried in the Worcester Cemetery and every year a large pine tree above his grave is lit with Christmas lights. Of course today there's nothing more iconic when it comes to candy than the alternating red and white stripes of the candy cane. But for 200 years before mass production was automated, they came in just one color, white. With the stripes came legends of stories about the candy cane, such as it being a secret code among persecuted Christians in Germany or England in the 17th century, a secret language amongst the Christian faithful depending on the stripe. Three represented the Trinity, one for Jesus' sacrifice and the more general role of the stripe as the blood of Jesus. True? I'm not so sure, Benjamin says. Still, other theories contend that the candy cane's J shape is an homage to Jesus, but Benjamin says that's an urban legend. The first mention of candy canes found in literature is from Balu's Monthly Magazine, Volume 23, published in 1866, in the story Tom Luther's Stockings. Nevertheless, persisted Tom, I'm going to find her out and contract with her for a bale or so of these stockings. Goodbye, Dick, he said, donning his hat. Be back in a minute. Come, Sonny. But the boy held back. I mustn't, he half supplicated. She don't like the rich folks to know where she lives. Tom stared at him with a puzzled smile, then pointing to some mammoth candy canes which were displayed in a shop window across the street, he said insinuatingly, My little dear, just take me to the young lady and you shall have those and enough candy to make you sick for a month. Even the iconic flavor of candy canes is full of mystery as no one knows who first created peppermint confections. Peppermint is a strong-smelling hybrid plant, a cross between a water mint and a spearmint. Peppermint is one of the world's oldest medicinal herbs used to treat stomach-related illnesses such as indigestion and nausea in both Eastern and Western medicine. During the 18th century, candies were medicinal meaning that your local apothecary was also your candy maker. 
That's because the medicinal ingredients that were prescribed were usually unpalatable concoction of herbs. To help the patient to consume the unpleasant medicine, chemists would suspend the herbs in sugar. Peppermint was often added to these sugar mixtures because its cooling taste helped to mask the flavor of awful tasting drugs. The peppermint Altoids was invented in 1781 by the London confectioner Smith & Company, which also made medicinal lozenges. Most people love peppermint candy canes for the refreshing cool taste it leaves in their mouths. Peppermint oil and extracts, primarily the essential oil menthol, are used to flavor candy canes. Menthol is an alcohol known for its waxy, crystalline appearance and is responsible for the cooling sensation of mint. We perceive mint as cold because menthol activates a specific receptor found in the sensory neurons of the skin and mouth. When menthol connects with an ion channel called TRPM8, it sends an electrical signal along the length of the neuron. Normally, the TRPM8 receptor is activated by cold temperatures, such as icy water or a slushy. Menthol, however, is able to bind with the TRPM8 protein, triggering it in the same way that something cold would. When TRPM8 detects menthol, the receptor sends the signal to the brain that something cold is in the mouth. We'll explore more about the science of how candy is made plus how another priest helped mass-produce candy canes after the break. Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm Chris. We're a married couple living in New York City. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably love Christmas just as much as we do. In our podcast, Christmas Time in the City, we talk about the history and traditions of the holidays in New York City. The Rockefeller Center Christmas Tree, Caroling in Washington Square Park, New Year's Eve in Times Square, the classic Christmas movies filmed here, we cover it all. In Listener Mail, we answer questions from listeners like you that may be planning a trip or maybe just curious about us. And in Christmas Confidential, we read anonymous listener-submitted Christmas confessions to help people finally get their deepest Yuletide secrets off their chest. So subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll talk to you soon. Unless you don't want to, then just forget about it. Really? Want too much? <laughs> no, it's fine. Do you love fun? Do you love movies? Do you love TV shows? Do you love informative entertainment? But most of all, do, do you, you love, love Christmas? Christmas? Then look no further, because we've got you covered. It's a 90s Christmas podcast is all about the most joyful and triumphant holiday in all its media, but only as far as the 90s are concerned. That's right. Our show not only is about the cheeriest time of the year, but also the cheesiest decade in world history. If that isn't an ideal combination, I don't know what is. Every week we will cover a movie, two sitcom episodes, and a Christmas special as long as it came out between 1990 and 2002. You can find us on iTunes, Podomatic.com, Stitcher.com, and Spotify. I am Lyle Perez from America. I am Lasse Vogt from Germany. And It's a 90s Christmas Podcast, offering perspectives from two different parts of the world, is waiting for you. Have fun, and no matter where you are or when you listen to this, a, a very, very Merry Christmas! The first mention of making the striped candy cane sticks with peppermint 
comes from The Complete Confectioner, Pastry Cook, and Baker, Plain and Practical, by Eleanor Parkinson in 1844. The recipe goes as such. The sticks can be made from raw or refined sugar. Boil it to the crack stage, which is about 310 degrees. Pour it on a stone rubbed over with a little oil or butter. Cut off a small piece and keep it warm to stripe. Fold the edges of the sugar over into the center and attach it to a hook fixed on the wall. Pull it towards you, throwing it on the hook each time after having pulled it out. Continue doing this until it gets rather white and shining. Then make it into a long, compact roll. Then pull into long, narrow sticks and cut them the required length. The peppermint must be kept perfectly white except the stripes, which is done by cutting off as many pieces as you have colors. When the remaining sugar is pulled, lay them over the surface in narrow stripes, double the roll together. Pull them out into long sticks and twist. They may be cut into smaller pieces with a pair of shears. Refined sugar or granulated sugar is known by the scientific name of sucrose. The sucrose molecule is a disaccharide, which means it's made of two molecules stuck together. These two monosaccharides are glucose and fructose. Because of the sucrose molecule structure, we can make all kinds of candy by just using sugar and a liquid, and sometimes a little bit of fat. When you heat the sucrose molecule to the right temperature, it breaks apart and forms caramel. This process is called caramelization. Because the sucrose molecule hates being split up, it tries to reform into sugar crystals. When and how you allow sugar crystals to form determines what kind of candy you make. Dissolving sugar in liquid is relatively easy. Simply stir. Simple, right? Well, not when it comes to making candy. You could never dissolve enough sugar in the liquid simply by stirring to create candy. Instead, we need to use heat. By raising the temperature of the liquid, you can force more sugar to dissolve. This principle is very important in candy making. It's the creation of a super-saturated liquid. As a super-saturated sucrose liquid cools, the sugar molecules will try to crystallize back into solid molecules. This is where we can interfere and make our solution become any one of many wonderful candy treats. As mentioned before in the making of the candy, the sugar has to be boiled to the crack stage. As the sugar syrup is cooked, water boils away, the sugar concentration increases, and the temperature rises. The highest temperature that the sugar syrup reaches tells you what the syrup will be like when it cools. In fact, that's how each of the temperature stages we're going to talk about is named. For example, at 235 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 115 Celsius, the syrup is at the soft ball stage. That means that when you drop a bit of it into cold water to cool down, it will form a soft ball. The hard crack stage is the highest temperature you are likely to see specified in a candy recipe. At these temperatures, between 300 and 310 degrees Fahrenheit, or approximately 150 degrees Celsius, there's almost no water left in the syrup. Drop a little of the molten syrup in cold water and it will form a hard, brittle threads that break when bent. Go beyond this temperature to about 320 degrees Fahrenheit, the sugar will start to caramelize and you'll see it start to turn brown. 
At this temperature, the sucrose molecules actually split apart and the atoms reform into a new and different molecules that give caramelization the wonderful flavors and aromas prized by cooks and chefs the world over. One word of warning, if you do try to make your own candy at home, molten sugar liquid is very hot. It will burn your skin severely on contact. So please, please be careful when you're making candy. So now we know how to make the peppermint sticks. One thing that is certain that the red and white stripes that are added later on a candy cane are a modern invention. Candy canes were originally solid white and during the turn of the 20th century, stripes started to appear. Prior to the late 19th century, Christmas cards of that period showed nothing but plain white candy. As with other forms of stick candy, the earliest canes were manufactured by hand. You can listen more about handmade candy in my episode about sugar plums. Chicago confectioners, the Bunte brothers, filed one of the earliest patents for candy cane making machines in the early 1920s. In 1919 in Albany, Georgia, Robert McCormick began making candy canes for local children. And by the middle of the century, his company, originally called the famous Candy Company, and then Mills McCormick Candy Company, and later Bob's Candies, had become one of the most world's leading candy cane producers. Candy cane manufacturing initially required significant labor that limited production quantities. The canes had to be bent manually as they came off the assembly line to create their curved shape and breakage often ran over 20%. McCormick's brother-in-law, Gregory Harding Keller, was a seminary student in Rome who spent his summers working in the candy factory back home. In 1957, Keller, as an ordained Roman Catholic priest of the Diocese of Little Rock, patented his invention, the Keller machine, which automated the process of twisting soft candy into spirals, striping and cutting it into precise lengths as candy canes. The patent application for a candy cane forming machine was filed on May 13, 1957, First, candy sticks cut to the desired length enter the machine. Each stick is bent individually, but the machine has a system of multiple grippers and rollers to continually bend the sticks one after the other. As each stick enters the machine, it is positioned in a gripper which holds the straight portion of the cane with the part to be bent protruding out. Each gripper has on one side a curved die which the protruding end will be bent over. The candy stick is first bent to a right angle as it is moved past and put into contact with an inclined face. The patent application describes two potential versions of the mechanism which complete the bending process. The first version of the mechanism has a chain around two sprockets on which are mounted bending rollers. Each bending roller is attached to a cam which rides along another inclined face to move the roller along the protruding surface of the cane to complete bending it around the die. In the second version, the chain and sprockets are replaced by a wheel on which the bending rollers are mounted. In modern candy cane production, the sticks are wrapped in cellophane before they're bent. About 2 billion candy canes are produced annually and they are an essential feature of every Christmas holiday. Today, candy canes don't only come in red and white and peppermint flavor. You can get rainbow candy canes, 
Sour Patch Kids flavored candy canes, pastel candy canes, even bacon candy canes. A Seattle novelty store carries a staggering variety of candy canes and many flavors which may or may not tempt the taste buds. Seattle's Archie McPhee is one of the largest and oldest novelty designers and manufacturers in America, providing the average Joe with items that seem like they were designed in some other dimension where the laws of practicality and common sense no longer apply. They have a long, colorful history of bringing weird and unfathomable items to an unsuspecting world, but it's not all screaming pickles and wind-up teeth. Running one of the most successful novelty operations in the world can lead to some pretty bizarre disasters. The company was founded in 1983 by curio aficionado Mark Palo, who would list strange, cool, and often useless items in colorful mail-order catalogs. In the beginning, he would find bizarre items like acupuncture dummies and resell them explicitly as novelties to other outlets, such as head shops. As the business grew, Palo began importing odd items from manufacturers overseas whose warehouses he would visit to shop for oddities. By the 1990s, the well of odd items began to run a bit dry, so Archie McPhee began to design and manufacture their own homegrown bits of strangeness as well. This expanded to their flavors of candy canes. The flavors range from ketchup, kale, pickle, bacon, pizza, and mac and cheese. Overall, these foods are pleasant to eat in their natural form, but I'm not sure about having it in a candy cane version. There's even a large candy cane called the Bah Humbug, the famous interjection from Charles Dickinson's Ebenezer Scrooge. It's basically an all-white candy cane with no added extra flavor, so you just get a stick of sugar. What's seen now as a novelty item ironically harks back to the beginnings of the candy cane's creation. As for the best way to eat the Yuletide treat, an NCA survey found that 72% of people think that starting at the straight end is the proper way to eat a candy cane, while 28% start at the curved end. No matter how you eat them, or even if you just leave them for decoration, candy canes are an iconic symbol of the Christmas season. Over 1.5 billion are sold in the U.S. alone, with December 26 being National Candy Cane Day. Today, candy canes are available in different shapes, colors, and flavors, but the red and white striped peppermint candy cane still remains the classic favorite. Thank you for listening to this serving of Seasons Eatings. Seasons Eatings is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, Amazon, Deezer, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Please, if you can leave a review about the show so we can spread the Christmas cheer. And if you let me know that you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eatings sticker as a personal thank you. Also, I would love to hear from you. Send me an email at seasonsyingspodcast at gmail.com to let me know how you like the show, suggestions for future episodes, or just to say hi. I know that we all get busy, so even sharing the podcast with someone who loves Christmas would be a big help. 
And if you're feeling extra generous this season, you can buy me a coffee. Head on over to the seasonseatingspodcast.com and click on the little coffee cup. Each small donation helps with the daily running of the podcast and is greatly appreciated. All music for Seasons Eatings is used under the Creative Commons license.